You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Um, well, welcome. Um, uh, I'll just a few more seconds while people come in from lunch. Um, I'm uh, Pam Constable. I'm a reporter for the Washington Post. I've been working in, on, and around Pakistan off and on uh, for the past many years, starting since 1998. Um, and before I uh, present our author, Stephen Tankle, to the right, um, uh, let me say that I have uh, two, two credentials uh, for being here today, one of which will make some of you laugh. Um, just so you know how long I've been overseas, I parked today in the basement of 11 DuPont Circle, <laughs> which is where Carnegie used to be. Um, my second credential uh, for being here today is that, and this will also make you laugh, I think, um, the first time I met uh, the members and leaders of Lashkari Taiba, which was in Islamabad in 1998, um, I think it was literally my first meeting with what are now known as jihadi groups. At the time, uh, it was simply known as um, you know, Mujahideen who were fighting in, uh, in Kashmir, uh, uh, Indian-held Kashmir, uh, to allegedly liberate uh, the Muslims from, from Indian Kashmir. And I went into their offices uh, in Islamabad, which were then open to the public, uh, and dressed in what I thought was very modest uh, clothing. I had a headscarf. I was wearing a blouse. I had on a long skirt um, and thought I was dressed appropriately for the occasion. And after I'd been sitting there for about, I don't know, 10 minutes with Abdullah Montazer, who is still their spokesperson, <laughs> which is an amazing thing, because we're thinking 1998. Um, I realized that he and the people around him were very uncomfortable, even though I, was, I thought I was fine. And after a few minutes, we were talking, and finally somebody got up, went over, picked up a rug from the floor, and put it over my lap so that it covered my calves, my ankles, and my feet. And then we just went on with the interview. But I, you know, you never forget something like that because, you know, I sort of a light went off in my head, and I realized that this was a kind of group and a kind of belief that I'd never really encountered before. Um, anyway, with that, I guess you're probably all here that are going to be. Uh, let me introduce a Stephen Tankle, who I just met one minute ago. I'll just read you from the program. Uh, he is a visiting scholar here. Uh, his research focuses on insurgency, terrorism, and the evolution of non-state armed groups. He is an associate fellow at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization and Political Violence and an adjunct staff member of the RAND Corporation. And he also just told me that he's teaching at American University as well, which I did not know. Um, he is the author of this book, Storming the World Stage, the Story of Lashkar e Taiba. Um, I would just like to make a few uh, comments about Lashkar Taliba and about the book very briefly. Um, then I'd like uh, for Stephen to talk as long as he'd like. I believe we have an hour and a half for this part of the program. Uh, feel free to talk as long as you'd like. I would say maybe 30, 40 minutes. So we have plenty of time for conversation and questions. Um, this is a very rich book. Uh, there have been a number of works published in Pakistan and elsewhere that have 
taken on the challenge uh, of trying to understand you know, the alphabet soup uh, of, of militant groups in Pakistan. Uh, and this really is you know, as dense and richly uh, 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 researched as by more so than anything I've read. So congratulations for a prodigious labor. And as you can see from the back of the book, the, the pages of notes <coughs> you know, are practically a whole chapter's worth. So this, this book, for anybody that really wants to understand the origins and the evolution in particular uh, of LET, uh, this book is, is very, very worth reading. And then you know, there, I want to say several things, but, but the most important point, I think, of the book, and I, I'm sure Stephen will talk more about it, to me, um, as you know, I guess what you call a journalist, a semi semi scholar uh, of the region, uh, is is how LET evolved from what was originally a very much all Kashmir all the time uh, focused organization to sort of dipping its toes in various aspects of other countries, other forms of jihad, to what is now clearly uh, acknowledged as a far more ambitious. Uh, 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 almost global uh, uh, focus. Uh, it's really evolved into uh, not only a highly disciplined and organized uh, and effective group, if you want to call it that, but one whose uh, scope of, of, of mission and ambition have broadened enormously. Uh, and I think that's, to see, to, to understand how that has happened, I think, helps us unlock a key to many other groups and how it has also uh, happened to them. Um, uh, obviously with far more repercussions for our interests uh, in the world than if they had simply remained focused on the uh, uh, putative liberation of, of, of Indian Kashmir. Um, just, just very briefly to go through the history for those of you who haven't followed it closely, Lashkar Taiba started out um, as, as a group, that a militant group uh, that went into Kashmir uh, uh, after the Kashmiri militants really had, had begun their operations, it introduced the first uh, violent suicide kinds of attacks uh, uh, into Kashmir, uh, which is a, a huge turning point for that, uh, for that struggle. Um, highly disciplined, highly organized uh, organization. I visited its, uh, its headquarters or its campus uh, uh, in Moritke a number of times uh, during those years. Very, very disciplined. I mean, it, you know, rivaled, I would say, the Muslim Brotherhood in many ways in its ability to, to truly indoctrinate and train, inspire, and organize uh, its cadres after recruiting them from, from various uh, seminaries. Um, it was, for many years, and of course, this is, the, this is the other fascinating aspect of its evolution, a highly protected and privileged group within the Pakistan military intelligence. Uh, orbit. It was, and, and you can say really almost through today, although today things really are changing very quickly, I think, for Pakistan. Um, you know, the, I mean, you, I could almost use the word coddled. You know, this was a group that, you know, when many other groups were causing mayhem, you know, trying to assassinate the president, uh, doing all sorts of crazy things, you know, these were the loyal uh, the loyal militants. These were the, the faithful proxies. You know, this was the group, and it was rewarded you know, with money, with resources. It really was very close to the Pakistani state, by which I mean the military intelligence establishment, for a very long time. Um, that has been changing, although perhaps not as much as, as we think or as, as we know. Um, of, course, of course, now it's grown into this, this monster. Uh, um, but it's very important to remember that. I mean, you look at the number of times Hafiz Saeed, the, the sort of the 
religious mentor of the group, uh, uh, was arrested and let go. I mean, they played this game for many, many years, uh, uh, you know, sort of ratcheting up when the West was pressuring them and then ratcheting down uh, when there was less pressure. But always the message to this group was, it's okay, guys. Alone, I think, among all of the militant groups, they were able to remain legal with, a, with, a, with, with front offices, with, they not only changed their name, they successfully changed their name and their modus operandi to become uh, this incredibly successful social welfare organization. Uh, and they were able to maintain this legally and publicly, uh, even until today. Uh, not only in the earthquake in Muzaffarabad, which I did not uh, cover, but with the floods in, in Sindh and, and southern Punjab, which I did cover uh, in 2010, they were everywhere. And as you know, just, just by changing that name, from Lashkari Taiba, which everybody knows about, to Jamatu Dawa, which in fact had been one of their original names, but they really uh, sort of moved into a full-blown public relations campaign to be Jamatu Dawa, to be the, uh, the, 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 the welfare arm, the teaching arm, the persuading arm, the helping arm of this group. And you know, when you went, when I went around to the flood zones and I talked to people about what had been happening, you know, Nobody knew that the Americans were there to help. Nobody knew uh, that the Pakistani uh, charities were there to help, except for the army. Everybody knew that Jamaat Adawa had been there to help. Which leads me to a very important point. If you look at all the opinion polls in Pakistan, as well as anecdotal information gathered by, by people like Stephen and myself, it's a very popular organization, especially in Punjab. It's Punjabi-based, always has been. If you look at, at, the, at the polls done by New America and others in, in the past several years, support for Taliban is low. Support for Al-Qaeda is very low. Support for Lashkar Taiba slash Jamaat Dawa is quite high nationally and extremely high in Punjab. It says a great deal. They have influence. This is not just a terrorist group. This is an influential, popular terrorist group within Pakistan. I think that's a very important uh, point to pursue. Um, and then sort of the last issue, which I'm sure Stephen will get into uh, in a lot of detail when we talk about Mumbai and, and, and the more recent uh, incarnation, um, is have they grown beyond the capacity of the state to control or are there activities now which are really much more global than ever before being conducted still with the unofficial support of at least aspects of the Pakistani state? Um, it seems that they are. We don't really know. It's a very complicated web of relationships as this book really goes into a lot of detail uh, to describe just how hard it is to know who is who, who they were, who they are, who they deal with, who their relationships with uh, are. Um, but I think that's one of the most important points. You know, Pakistan remains, uh, uh, for better or worse, uh, an important uh, uh, strategic ally of the United States, uh, uh, a victim as well as a perpetrator uh, of violence. Um, it's very important that we figure out the extent to which a group like this still has some support, uh, or even a lot of support, uh, from the establishment there. So I'm going to stop here because he, Stephen, has so much more to tell us. Uh, and please, just you know, feel free to say whatever you like. I'll jot down a few questions as you go, uh, and then you know, be happy to, to entertain as many questions and comments as we have time for. Stephen, uh, thank you so much, uh, Pamela, for the 
kind introduction for agreeing to moderate the discussion. You know, it's um, when one writes a book, uh, and, and Pamela has written a, a fantastic one herself, we go around and we do these different events, and very often you're sitting there next to a moderator, and it becomes pretty clear pretty fast that the moderator hasn't actually read the book that you're there to, uh, <laughs> to talk about. I read the so, notes. <laughs> so I really appreciated, um, you know, your, your introduction and, and hitting on some of those uh, important points, particularly because it allows me um, to try to zero in, you know, a little bit uh, on what I think are a couple of key factors, uh, you know, as we stand today. And one of the questions uh, that, that came up in the course of, of writing this book was why LET has evolved as, as it has, and I will try to dig into that uh, as we go through. But another one that, that had came up for me was, you know, um, what should the U.S. do about it, um, and, and what can we expect from the Pakistanis? Um, and unfortunately, I don't come bearing uh, great news this holiday season, um, which is to say that right now I think expecting cajoling or coercing uh, some sort of a, a real crackdown, um, you know, at least right now, is not in the cards. And, and to understand that, I think it's important to understand, uh, you know, Pakistan's own perception of its security environment and how Lashkar fits into that. Um, you know, because this is not, uh, you know, as much as we may not like it, you know, at least as far as I think the Pakistani security establishment is concerned, you know, continued support or unwillingness to crack down on, on Lashkar-e Taiba um, is not a rational act in, in their minds. Um, and I think that's important to, to be clear about. So I'd like to do a couple things. First, I want to just delve briefly into an overview of that security strategy. Uh, then I'd like to spend some more time on where Lashkar-e Taiba fits into that and use that as a jumping off point to talk about uh, its evolution and you know, its threat to the US and this expansion that, that Pamela was referencing. And, and you'll have to forgive me, that's the portion of this talk where I try to cram in about 285 pages of my book into 12 minutes. Um, you know, then I, I want to come back to sort of conclude with uh, some recent impressions from the field, uh, why I think action remains unlikely against LET uh, in the short term, and then we can maybe use the discussion uh, time. You know, that'll be a jumping off point for where that leaves the U.S. Um, you know, not to sort of give away the, the plot in advance or ruin the suspense, but my, my sense is that, that overall right now, you know, we are finding ourselves, I think, given the ground reality in a situation where action on our parts vis-a-vis Lashkar Taiba is along the lines of containment. I don't think, unfortunately, that we're going to see any great strategic breakthrough um, you know, in, in the near term. So, uh, and then I just, I, before I get going forward, I should just note, I, uh, as Pamela noted, uh, Lashkar Taiba has an above ground wing, Jamaat Dawa. Um, I tend to use these terms to a degree interchangeably. Um, technically, Lashkar Taiba is the militant wing, Jamaat Dawa is the above ground political, religious, social welfare wing. Um, I think it's quite interesting that increasingly when I talk with people in Pakistan, they talk about Jamaat al-Dawa rather than necessarily talking about Lashkar Taiba, um, even when they're talking about militant activities. So I use them interchangeably for uh, just the sake of, of clarity. I'll probably mainly use Lashkar or LET uh, just so that you know, we don't get confused. Um, in any event, to, to begin with just a brief overview um, of you know, how one can perceive uh, Pakistan's two national security priorities. Um, and, and I don't think this is going to come as a shock for many people in, in the room. I mean, this is, I, for many, I won't necessarily be sharing much new here, but I think it's important to set context. Um, 
One is to check perceived Indian aggression, rising Indian hegemony, uh, particularly in the region. Um, and the other is to maintain the, Pakistan's own internal integrity. Um, the, the military, which you know, right now remains primarily in control of Pakistan's security policy, prioritizes the external over the internal, um, which is to say that its, its top priority is checking India's rise and aggression and secondarily maintaining the integrity um, of the country. But the two are inherently interconnected, as you can imagine, um, because domestic instability weakens Pakistan's ability to check India's rise. And the flip side is, you know, domestic instability is often considered the result of Indian aggression and Indian meddling in Pakistan. Um, see that, you know, I, you know, it's quite common when talk to people about uh, Turkey Taliban Pakistan attacks against Pakistan to hear that this is there is a hidden hand, there is a foreign hand. India is behind this, uh, increasingly of some concern to me, and, and I think you know others during my last trip. Uh, some Pakistani interlocutors also saw the U.S. Um, behind some of this as well. I'll come back to that. Um, very briefly on the external front, uh, Pakistan has fought um, four wars against India, if you count the Kargil conflict. Um, it hasn't won any of them, um, and it remains at a conventional disadvantage vis-a-vis its bigger and stronger neighbor. Um, and that's particularly true even, you know, right now in Indian defense acquisitions are enabling it to augment an already robust a conventional advantage. Um, successive governments in Pakistan, civilian and military, and I think that's important, uh, have employed militant or jihadist proxies uh, against India as a means to avoid a head-on uh, confrontation um, and still check its rise, though in several instances the use of these proxies has led to conventional confrontation. Uh, Lashkar Taiba, as Pamela mentioned, became Pakistan's premier proxy during the 1990s against India, and it remains among its most reliable ones today. And I think it's important, uh, you know, when we talk about LAT's utility, not to play down the importance of the India-Pakistan competition. I mean, you know, that's somewhat trite. We talk about that all the time, but sometimes there's the sense that maybe it's it, it is seen as a stereotype or not taken seriously enough. And I think it's very important to understand that that competition and that perception of Indian aggression has not disappeared among you know, the Pakistani security establishment. It is still very much there. Um, internally today, as many will know, Pakistan is facing a jihadist insurgency of its own. Unfortunately, it, it lacks, I would suggest, a real counterterrorism strategy, and the counterterrorism doctrine that, that does exist was evolved by the military. Um, the military, at least in my estimation, seems to understand that the country faces a real threat from terrorism, but its approach has been, you know, uneven, um, you know, to say the least. Um, you know, and, and the nature... Schizophrenic, possibly? Schizophrenic <laughs> would, would be, um, I think, probably potentially a more... I think a term, actually, that I used um, in the book. Um, not as diplomatic, but, um, but, but true. Um, and, and I think it's also notable that, that to a degree, that the, the Pakistani military is interested in protecting the country's, country's internal integrity to the degree that it's necessary to protect Pakistan's borders. You know, it's very interesting to make a comparison between the military and the police. The military are concerned about protecting Pakistan's territorial integrity. The police, by nature, and this goes for any country, are more concerned about protecting the population. And so you get different approaches to how these militant groups are approached based on you know, the level of threat that they pose to internal stability. In the short term, you know, and, and certainly at present, it's fair to say that, that the security establishment's approach has been to target some militant entities directly, to cut deals with others, 
um, as part of a wider triage approach uh, in which those entities that are viewed as strategic actors abroad and or which are not attacking the Pakistani state are protected and preserved. Um, here it's also worth noting that the issue of engaging in what I would term revolutionary jihad, um, term promoted by other scholars as well, um, against you know, the Muslim regime is or has become a major dividing line between Pakistanis' uh, different jihadist groups. Um, and a common refrain uh, among military and civilian officials that I've heard regarding Lashkar and others that remain, quote, on side, is if we don't hit them, then they won't hit us. Um, this is despite the fact that given the interconnected nature of the militant milieu, that alphabet soup of jihadist groups, um, slippage naturally occurs. And so some of these pro-state militants uh, do become involved in anti-state violence. Nevertheless, the aim remains to control to the degree possible those groups that have not turned against the state. And I would submit to continue to try to direct their energies for the most part outward into Afghanistan and to a lesser extent Kashmir. Crucially, Lashkar remains committed to jihad externally and provides some utility internally as well. Um, and here let me come to sort of the second part of my talk, which is delving into Lashkar and its evolution. Um, and I'm inevitably going to skip over uh, you know, parts that are uh, near and dear to me from, from its, its development. Hopefully we can get into some of that during the, the Q&A. Um, overall, uh, you know, I would suggest that to understand um, why Lashkar retains utility why it remains protected, why it has been able to grow powerful, we need to understand the two dualities that define the group. The first is that it's a missionary and a militant organization, um, which is to say that its leaders uh, lend equal weight to dawah, calling people to Islam uh, through nonviolent means and to jihad. On the missionary front, it pursues a reformist agenda um, that aims to purify Pakistan via dawah, um, again, nonviolent Islamist activism, uh, and the conversion of its population to Ali Hadith Islam in order to create a true Islamic state. Crucially, as I mentioned, Lashkar leaders abjure jihad against Muslim regimes, um, even those with which they disagree vehemently. Um, and I want to just make two points um, from its, its arguments here. Um, and this is directly from members within the group that I've spoken to in the past, its literature, and people that I spoke to again this summer. The first is that fighting the Pakistani government is a distraction from the real jihads in Kashmir, uh, against India, in Afghanistan, and other places where non-Muslim aggressors are found. The second is that cooperating with non-Muslims for worldly profit, as the Pakistani government does, um, in terms of cooperating with the US for, for aid, makes them misguided, but not apostates. Only if Muslims actively fight against other Muslims are they apostates. Hence, groups like Al-Qaeda, and Tariq Taliban Pakistan, who murder Muslims instead of, or in addition to, fighting the true enemy, i.e. Christians, Jews, Hindus. These guys, AQTTP, are the real apostates, and the Pakistani military is correct to be fighting them. Um, this brings us to the second duality, which concerns Lashkar's military activities. And that is to say that it's both a pan-Islamist outfit um, and a Pakistani proxy. Uh, it places a strong emphasis on the recovery of lost Muslim lands and the defense of Islam around the world. Indeed, it got its start in Afghanistan, um, not in Kashmir. Kashmir wasn't the first place that its, its members fought. It began in Afghanistan with the merger 
uh, interestingly enough, of a missionary and a militant organization. Um, after Afghanistan, some of its members are said to have fought in Tajikistan. Um, we know that they were in Bosnia-Herzegovina. They certainly tried to get to Chechnya. Um, so this was pursuing multiple fronts. Um, although Kashmir um, you know, is viewed as part of Pakistan and hence the most important front in need of liberation. Um, Lashkar leaders also view Kashmir as a springboard for a larger jihad against India, um, which they believe is an unnatural entity and with the right stimulus it will fracture and the minority Muslim population there will guide an Islamic revolution against the Hindu majority. Thus, Lashkar's pan-Islamist priorities historically, and particularly during the 1990s, overlapped with Pakistan's national interests in terms of weakening India. Um, and in addition to that ideological overlap, it received robust state support for this jihad, which also helps explain not why it was fighting in Kashmir or even why it gave it ideological priority, but you know, perhaps why it ultimately uh, focused on that to the exclusion of all other fronts. You know? and, and to quote, you know, not to get overly academic, but you know, Nietzsche has the great quote that you know, the, the, the good war hallows the cause. And the longer you fight on that front, the more important that front can become. Um, now, of course, Pakistan, you know, as we all know, was supporting a host of jihadist outfits during the 1990s for nationalist uh, rather than Islamist purposes, but so long as this support it, you know, remained extant, official policy aligns with jihadist objectives. When Musharraf's government aligns with the U.S. after 9-11, it fractures that alignment. And the, the Musharraf regime subsequently divides militant outfits you know, into pro-state and anti-state, good jihadi, bad jihadi, good Taliban, bad Taliban. There are all these different you know, terms for it. Um, based on their perceived controllability, and their utility against India. This wasn't just about strategic utility abroad. This was also about controllability internally. Now, as I detail um, you know, in, in its, I think, significant depth in the, in the book, and I won't go into all of it here, Lashkar fares the best among all these different actors. And I, just, I think it's useful to tick off some of the reasons why. First, it genuinely is primarily committed to jihad against India. So the, there's still overlap with you know, Pakistan's national interests. Second, it doesn't have the same history of involvement in Afghanistan during the 90s or relations with the Taliban that other groups had. The reason for that is that it's an Ali Hadith outfit. Okay? They're Salafist in orientation. Most Pakistani militant groups are Diobandi, same uh, school of thought as the Taliban. LET had not been close with the Taliban during the 1990s like all of these other groups have, so it's perceived as less of a threat. It's unlikely to respond negatively right, um, to the the Pakistani government's decision to forsake the Taliban, at least in the short term. Third, because of that Dubandi Ali Hadith divide, um, Lashkar doesn't have a lot of natural allies in the country. Uh, the Ali Hadith are a much smaller minority. It's the only major militant outfit. Again, most of them are Dubandi. And Lashkar historically is estranged from the wider Ali Hadith movement because of its interpretation of jihad. So this is a group with no natural allies. But that robust Pakistani support enabled it during the 1990s to build up a very robust infrastructure, right? And that provides the state with leverage. If you don't obey our commands, if you don't remain obedient, we are going to take your schools, your mosques, your madaris. We're going to seize, you know, the businesses that you have invested in, etc. Can you do me a favor? Just yeah. give us a one-sentence mm -hmm. Definition of the distinction between Deoband and Ali Hadith? Sure. Um, the Ali Hadith, as I said, Salafist in, in, in orientation, which means that they, um, you know, theoretically 
believe only in the Quran and the Hadith. They do not follow any of the Islamic schools of jurisprudence. The uh, Taliban are Diobandi, as are many of the other groups. Diobandis follow the Hanafi school of Islamic jurisprudence. Um, and so you have a theological divide there. Now, it's important to note, I have asked Diobandi militants, what you know, scholars of jurisprudence should I look to to understand your, you know, your, your thinking? And many of them have said, it's the Quran and the Hadith. And I'm like, well, then you're Salafi. And they're like, no, we're Diobandi. So these differences often break down. But what's important, I think, to take away is that in terms of the sectarian competition within Pakistan, you know, getting people to your Ali Hadith madrasa versus your Diabandi madrasa means money, it means supporters, it means power. And so even though sometimes along theological lines these divides break down, um, you know, they matter in terms of the competition. I would also note, as you have, uh, in terms of that, I, I, I love the anecdote about Abdullah Muntazir, who I've met on a number of occasions. Um, Lashkar is deemed to be more doctrinaire than any of the other groups. I mean, it takes its religion and its theology much more seriously. You know, there are instances of people who go to a Lashkar camp, but, you know, smoking is not, is considered haram. And so they're drummed out because they can't smoke. But they'll go and they'll join a Diobandi group, and it's, ah, you know, they're a bit, they're, 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 they're a bit more loose about that kind of thing. You know, so there's just... All of these little, you know, theological, you know, issues, Lashkar is much more doctrinaire, which contributes to the fact that it has no natural allies in the country. You know, its, its members are often seen as sort of a, a bit pompous, almost, in their religiosity. Prudish. Um, so, in any event, uh, long story short, Lashkar maintains a primary focus on India. Uh, it also increases its focus on social welfare after 9-11, particularly after about 2002, 2003. Um, you know, according to people within the group at the ISIs and the army's um, behest. Now, I argue that after 9-11, Lashkar was playing its own double game. Um, and I think this is important. What most people see is a social welfare provider, a religious party that when it fights, it fights against India. And that's the public face, Right. Behind the scenes, because this is a, in many ways a Janus-faced organization, um, if we could say that it has even only two, um, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it becomes a contributor to what can be termed the global jihad um, you know, against the U.S. and its allies. Um, and that increases over time, in particular as you know, the, the Kashmir conflict declines and the Afghan insurgency accelerates. <laughs> Anti-Americanism is growing, um, and you just you need to keep up, right? Um, interestingly, in the first couple of years, I, I think Lashkar was moving even more in, in a global jihadist direction. People within the group have told me the ISI sort of reeled it back in around 2003 um, and rewarded it, but then things start moving back in the other direction around 2006, 2007 when they go into Afghanistan. I want to briefly turn to the nature of these global jihadist contributions because I think they're important. Then I want to get to that thorny issue of intent that, that, that you referenced before and then just sort of come back to close in terms of why I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, inaction is unlikely and, and I'll have droned on long enough at that point. Um, in terms of contributions, um, most of them have been covert, not overt. Uh, Lashkar's got you know, a robust training apparatus in, in Pakistan. Um, historically, uh, you know, it benefited 
as did many groups, but more than others from Army and ISI support for those training camps, which were still, you know, there, we still, there were still soldiers on detachment, according to numerous reports, at these groups after 9-11. There's speculation among some that they're still there today. You know, that's much harder to get at these days. Um, and I don't want to sort of engage in that speculation without having a bit more evidence to it. We definitely have evidence that in the first several years, soldiers on detachment were still at those camps um, through Mumbai. I mean, the preparation right. for Mumbai allegedly right. included, included either current, former, or... Or something in between. And I'll come back to sort of the degree to which there's that reach-back capability, even if the soldiers aren't necessarily at the camp providing the training. Nevertheless, Lashkar's camps, again, long story short, have real cachet. In the first couple years, uh, in particular, after the U.S. goes into Afghanistan, you don't have training camps there, LET picks up some of that slack. They're treated better by the Pakistani state, so they also are able you know, to operate those camps more robustly uh, than others. And when there's going to be a sweep coming through, their connections to the Pakistani military you know, and the ISI, even at the mid-level, there's warning in advance you can get the folks who aren't supposed to be there out. Um, it also is allowed to maintain more of a robust above-ground infrastructure. One, that makes raising money a lot easier. And money is really important. Okay? This is probably the richest organization, um, you know, jihadist organization in Pakistan by some accounts. Uh, and it's, it occasionally uses that money to support you know, attacks abroad, not just in India, but also against uh, the U.S. Secondly, that above-ground infrastructure historically can act as a gateway. It's a port of call for you know, a Westerner to go and drop in at a Lashkar mosque or madrasa um, now, since Mumbai, there's more focus uh, on these, but historically there was less. Um, you know, that doesn't always mean that, that LET is actively passing these guys along to AQ. Sometimes they're a gateway even if they don't want to be, right? And this is sort of the, the issue of that infrastructure being used by different entities without there necessarily being complete control over it. Um, in addition to uh, a really... Uh, healthy infrastructure in Pakistan. The group has transnational networks in India, Bangladesh, Nepal, the Gulf, Europe, uh, as well as, you know, there have been arrests in North America. Um, these have primarily been used to support attacks against India and to raise money uh, for their social welfare operations in Pakistan. But there's evidence that they've been used for transnational terror. Um, suggestions that representatives in France gave some assistance, probably um, monetary, to the shoe bomber. Um, again, possible monetary assistance to some of the folks responsible for trying to bring down transatlantic airlines with liquid explosives. Uh, a French operative was deployed to Australia to help an Australian operative of Lashkar's move a terrorist plot forward there in 2003. One of their members in, based in Oman in 2007 or 8, who was responsible for moving weapons and money into and out of India to support attacks, uh, had some Western targets in his sights there too. Um, so again, it's the degree to which these networks are fungible that is of real concern. Uh, they have, their members have been found during this decade in Iraq, uh, and you know, I'm told by some in the U.S. government, Somalia as well. This is primarily about waving the pan-Islamist flag, creating connections with other militant groups, and bringing back tactics, training, and procedures at home. This is not a substantial commitment to these fronts. And then, of course, since the Kashmir conflict has declined around 2005-2006, growing numbers of Lashkar fighters found in Afghanistan. And then finally, the Mumbai attacks, um, you know, where Westerners are deliberately targeted, shows us 
Lashkar's tactical acumen, in particular, I would note in terms of reconnaissance, patient attack planning, reach back capability to the Pakistani military, <coughs> not at the upper levels, but you know, at the sort of mid-level where this can be unsanctioned or rogue support that is leveraging personal connections. Um, that's important. So, and there's evidence uh, that the Mumbai attacks were the result of internal tensions uh, within the organization, which is to say that it was losing some cachet to groups that were seen as more active in Afghanistan, fighting against the Pakistani state, and wanted to do something big to bring folks back into the fold. So this brings us to the question of intent. Um, it's fair to say that it has capabilities to be a global player and publicly states a desire to wage jihad against the West, but its senior leaders remain influenced by a sense of Pakistani nationalism, regional factors, um, desire to protect their domestic infrastructure still. All of that's limited its military adventurism at times. And so despite its rhetoric, Lashkar has shown little inclination to sort of lead the global jihad, right? Um, in part, that's because of its close relationship with the state as well, um, and that also would make it difficult to imagine the group replacing uh, al-Qaeda. Um, so although it might not help me sell books to say that Lashkar isn't the next AQ, um, you know, or, or number, terrorist enemy number one for America, the truth is right now it's not. Um, but that said, there's clearly tensions within the organization um, and a sense that among some members, the leadership is waging the ISI's jihad rather than Allah's jihad. At the same time, again, that overall interconnectedness of the milieu, Lashkar's entrance into Afghanistan means that there is opportunities to form closer working relationships with other groups. Um, it means that many of those fighting in Afghanistan have more experience fighting against Americans than against Indians. All of this leads to the potential for factionalism in LET, freelancing by some of its militants, also puts pressure on the leadership to push the envelope um, a la Mumbai. Um, my sense from talking with individuals in, in several governments as well as interlocutors in Pakistan is that the ISI took Mumbai as a, as a sign that Lashkar was in danger of spinning out of control. The answer was not to dismantle it, but rather to re-exert control over the organization, in particular to help the leadership re-exert control over you know, some of those factions. Um, you know, so I think we need to be cognizant when drawing conclusions about the nature of the threat. Um, you know, we need to consider the top-down pressure from the ISI, um, and the bottom-up pressure from the rank and file, um, as well as the possibility that members can use its capabilities for unsanctioned attacks. Um, here it's also worth noting, ideologically, LET isn't opposed to attacks against the U.S. or its allies, right? Um, this is about strategic restraint and prioritization. Um, that said, pushing the envelope against America is a way to make up for conservatism vis-a-vis -vis fighting against Pakistan, though I must stress India remains the primary enemy for LET and its primary focus um, at present. So, you know, what can we expect, in, you know, from, from Pakistan? Um, and, and I just want to sort of conclude with, uh, unfortunately, I think a little bit of a gloomy assessment. Um, to return to that external, internal utility uh, dynamic, now that we have a better sense of, of, of LET itself, um, dismantling without extracting some concessions from India, you know, over Kashmir, removes a valuable uh, you know, source of leverage for Pakistan. Um, complicating the situation is the fact that it remains among the best instruments to sabotage a deal if hardliners in Pakistan believe that too much is being given away to India. Here I have to stress, hardliners exist on the Indian side too, so I want to be equitable uh, you know, on that front. Um, whether or not it would actually have utility as such, 
many within the Pakistani security establishment, or at least many of those I've spoken to, continue to view Lashkar as a potential auxiliary force in the event of war with India. Um, and I would also add that Lashkar-related violence, even the existence of the group, is a means of anchoring India to Pakistan. So sort of keeping that hyphenation between the two countries um, you know, and dragging India back into the bilateral relationship. Um, so you know, all of that remains very important. You know, and then, of course, uh, you know, there is the fact that, that internally there are concerns about the group as well. I want to sort of get to the end here so we can get to a good discussion. Um, but I want to just make a couple points. First, um, the costs of dismantling the group um, as perceived by the Pakistani military appear prohibitive at present. One, dismantling it could splinter it, and then you lose some of those, you know, that external utility. Um, but quite frankly, you know, and there's, a, there's an argument to be made for this, is that the Pakistani security establishment doesn't want to take steps against Lashkar, risk any action that could lead the group to become more involved in the insurgency against the state than, you know, than some of its members already are. In particular, because that could lead to increased terrorist attacks you know, in Punjab province, which is the Pakistani heartland. Um, you know, so even though you have some factionalism, freelancing Lashkar members have been involved on an ad hoc basis in attacks against the Pakistani state, my sense is that there is, um, and again, I say this without judgment, um, you know, a preparedness to accept, perhaps because there's little choice, uh, the, you know, that, that, quote, slippage as the cost of doing business and avoiding a larger conflagration. Um, there's also evidence to suggest that Lashkar is playing uh, actually a somewhat positive role in checking the advance of some anti-state militants. Former senior Lashkar official told me this summer the group is actively opposing al-Qaeda in its war against Pakistan. Um, this is partly a response to ide ideological attacks by AQ, which paint uh, Lashkar as an ISI lackey, um, but it's also potentially part of a strategy to undermine the ideological basis for the insurgency. Um, and I come back to those points I made before about it being wrong to attack, you know, the Pakistani state. Some Lashkar members are also suspected of working with the ISI um, more actively, providing intelligence or directly attacking militants who are at war with the Pakistani state. Local interlocutors speak a lot, and I'm sure you've seen this. I saw this this summer of a, a great expansion of JUD, um, you know, in Pakistan. Um, and I would, in particular, point to its growth in some of those areas. Um, in, in Punjab in particular, that abut Fatah and Khabar Pathukhwa that are potential choke points for militants coming into the Pakistan, in, into the Punjabi heartland, this idea that we want our guys there, right? right? Um, and then finally, you know, as Pamela, as you discussed, as, as I alluded to, it's JUD, the above-ground organization, has developed into a formidable political religious force. And so you have to consider the various social consequences of moving against the group as well. Closing down its operations could create a vacuum uh, in terms of social services for the pockets of the Pakistani population who rely uh, on schools, hospitals, dispensaries, relief aid. It also forces some of those men who work for those above-ground entities, some of which have military training, some of whom have military training, you know, out onto the street. Second, were sincere attempts made to take over the above-ground JUD, um, that could lead the group to engineer destabilizing social protests. Um, and third, quite frankly, I think it's fair to say that many provincial officials uh, in Punjab, where it has its base, um, you know, fear the group's political clout with some politicians depending on it uh, for vote banks. Um, and then fourth, and I'll, I'll close on this note, uh, 
But for all of these reasons, that uneven schizophrenic policy um, has created gray areas in, term, in that even those authorities who are prepared to move against militants aren't quite sure who's off limits and who's not off limits. And so sometimes it's safer not to act than to risk acting against the wrong guys. Um, you know, I had a, 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 a senior CT uh, official with the Punjab police say to me this summer, listen, you know, some of these groups we monitor, some of them we don't. Quite frankly, Lashkar JUD, they're outside of our orbit. Um, you know, so let me stop there and we could, right. you know, on that gloomy assessment take some questions and do some discussion. Um, Stephen, I, I don't have a watch, so I don't know how much time we have left, but hopefully uh, a good chunk of time. Um, before we open it up to questions, I would just like to ask you um, uh, one question. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a complicated picture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, here they're acting as a gateway, even though they don't agree right. with, you know, uh, some of the, the Al-Qaeda uh, uh, philosophy. Um, and although you suggest that it's not as much of a threat uh, internationally, or certainly to the West, as some other groups are. Um, how do you see its current stature inside Pakistan as contributing to what I think and what I write about in my uh, new mm -hmm. book is uh, what I call, you know, not simplistically Talibanization, but yeah. but what I prefer to call the increasing emotional defensiveness yeah. and emotional attachment to, uh, uh, to more extreme versions uh, of Islam that's beginning to spread across um, Pakistan in conjunction with more muscular nationalism and anti-Westernism. Do you think that Lashkar be, uh, and Jamaat Adawa, by, by the fact that they, they're legal, they have money, they have social welfare, they're acceptable, they're popular, they've got some si kinds of state support, are they contributing to what could be, in fact, a very worrisome situation in which potentially we have a country of 180 million people that is drifting uh, in a direction that is very much antithetical, um, antithetical to our interests? Yeah. Um, I think, first of all, it's, it's an excellent question. And I, um, let me first say, in terms of the threat externally to us, um, you know, I, don't, I, I, I try to walk that fine line, you know, that sort of very balanced line between saying, listen, we are, the U.S. is not Lashkar's primary enemy today, and Lashkar is not the biggest threat that the U.S. is facing today. Um, but intent can change, and the capabilities are there. Um, so I think it's important you know, not to downplay that threat either, um, you know, or to overlook the fact that there are a number of ways that LET transnationally can contribute to threatening the U.S. interests abroad at home, uh, you know, without necessarily leading the global jihad in terms of coordination, facilitation, etc. So I just want to—I don't want to downplay it, um, you know—in my bid to not be hysterical. Um, you know, I think it's a—it's—it's it's a bit of a moving target. I would argue, and I think I, you know, I, I, I do argue that in some ways, you know, I think I come to this in the, in the conclusion, the, the biggest long-term threat that Lashkar poses, you know, I mean, at least if you are, you know, looking from not even a secular liberal perspective, but the perspective of one who does not want to see, you know, Pakistan moving in an increasingly, um, and I don't even want to say conservative, I, I want to say, you know, uh, Islamist um, and, uh and, and, and unaccepting direction, um, you know, uh, 
Lushkar, in some ways, that's the biggest threat that it poses over time. Um, you know, because of the respect that it has, because uh, you know of JUD, uh, you know, this issue also of a growing conservatism in Pakistan is something that I find very intriguing. It was, uh, you know, before I left to go back and do research this summer on sort of the next evolution of Diobandi militants and everybody else, sort of separate and apart from LET. Um, one of the questions that I had with a lot of people, you know, one of the things they said to me was, if you can get a sense of the degree to which this conservatism is real, because it's very hard for us to measure empirically. Uh, anecdotally, a lot of the conversations I've had, you know, something struck me, which was that, one, in some instances, this growing conservatism is, is tied to anti-Americanism, right? If the U.S. is seen as at war with Islam, then there is a knee-jerk response to be more, you know, right. overtly embracing of it. But the other is the fact that, you know, I spoke with a number of people who, quite frankly, were being more overt in their religiosity or were being more quiet in terms of their criticism, not because they themselves were actually moving in this direction, but because of the level of intimidation by actors like JUD. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where you get to this, you know, ratcheting effect where you get different religious parties in some ways competing with one another. Right. Um, it's how you get Salman to Seer. It's how you get the how blasphemy. How you get the Borelvies. Bre right, it's how you get the Borelvies, you know, sort of adopt, you know, get, right. getting out front the on the blasphemy. Right, on, this bl on the right. blasphemy issue. In some, you know, according to some interlocutors, because they were, you know, at risk of losing right. people, right. Um, you know, or money and were looking to grab onto something, you know, and so I think that ratcheting effect is yeah. very important. Um, I, in the past, have said, you know, for our purposes, from a transnational terrorism perspective, how do you, you know, what is one way to get rid of LET? Well, it's to, and I still maintain, you strangle it from the outside. Right now, I think, given the ground reality, there's not much hope for, like, dismantling it internally. So you have to contain and work from the outside in. But you also encourage movement from LAT militancy towards Jumato Dawa above ground nonviolent activism, right? That the whole group doesn't go away, that this missionary approach, um, the value for Dawa means that, that you could move people towards nonviolent activism. That's, the, I think we should try to, you're right. a very long answer. Sorry, so. the, the, um, I would just say the consequence of that, though, is potentially empowering a group that is feeding into that threat that, right. you, that you know. Um, let's open it up to questions uh, in the back, yes? Uh, Just I'm from briefly Mo identify yourself. Yes, I'm a national defense expert. I'm from Argentina. My question is, I don't have a clear picture of this group. I want to know, for example, taking into account that Pakistan was and still divided between uh, Allah and the army. It seems that this group receives uh, orders from religious group. Now, my question is, how do they recruit recruit their followers? Cyber recruitment, uh, religious recruitment, university recruitment, taking into account that the intelligence agencies in Pakistan do not uh, follow any specific authority, especially that. Yes, that is how they recruit. Um, uh, you know, to, to extrapolate a little bit, um, first of all, JUD, you know, I don't have a clear picture of Lashkari Taiba. Um, you know, it's, I think, constantly a moving target. It's very difficult to understand in large part because it wants to be misunderstood at times by different audiences. Uh, to the question of recruitment, um, 
yeah, there's cyber recruitment. Yes, there's man-to-man -man recruitment. It's also important to discuss what recruitment means. Uh, a lot of people join the above-ground wing Jamaat-Dawa. Um, many of them will first go through a training course called Dara Isufa. That is going to be primarily religious indoctrination. Of those, a smaller number um, can, can then go through Dara I Amma, which is a sort of a general training course. Both of these are about three weeks. Minimal weapons instruction, some physical activity. And a much smaller number will actually move on and go through real military training. And even of those who've gone through sort of the three-month military training, an even smaller number of those will be deployed to fight somewhere. So a lot of people are getting trained who aren't necessarily joining the group. Some people are joining the group but aren't getting military training. They're working in above ground. All of this makes it, A, powerful, but B, very difficult for us to get a sense of what its real numbers are. Because what constitutes a Lashkar member? Somebody who's trained? Well, what kind of training? Somebody who's in the group? Well, what about somebody who's gone through all of that training left, maybe even fought, but says, now I'm in the reserves, I drive a taxi, but if my Amir calls me, I'll answer the call. Um, you know, so that's sort of a window into that, into that recruitment. Sir, in the middle. Yeah. Uh, with its social welfare programs, uh, Lashkar sounds a bit like uh, Hezbollah or Hamas. Um, I wonder. I know that Hezbollah is only considered a terrorist organization by six countries, uh, maybe Hamas even fewer. Is there a similar situation with Lashkar? Um, Lashkar is, is somewhat different from Hezbollah and Hamas in that both of those groups um, are willing to be involved in government. Um, you know, Hamas runs the government in Gaza, Hezbollah is a member of you know, Lebanese parliament. Uh, Lashkar abjures participation in, in democracy. It's a religious party, not a political party. Its members never run for office. That doesn't mean it's not a political player, um, you know, but that's an important distinction in terms of you know, how we talk about it. But it, it, its potential um, for legitimacy, um, you know, because it's unlikely to ever be part of a, a governing coalition of, of, of any kind. You know, it's interesting. I'm assuming we label it Yes, we have. Yes. How many other countries? Um, I don't have the, the exact number of countries do. Um, I can tell you that not only Lashkar, but also Jamaat Dawa have also been added to the 1267 list, um, the Al-Qaeda and Taliban sanctions uh, committee. So, you know, anybody who subscribes to the UN around the world, um, you know, there are several, um, you know, things that, that you now cannot give money to the group. The group cannot raise money. It's not allowed to have bank accounts, etc. What is interesting is that while Pakistan enforces the um, the 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 law the laws according to the UN twelve sixty seven resolution it has not banned the group JUD is still legal in Pakistan and um, I just want to point out I've, the last time I listened to um, Hafiz Saeed you know he goes in and out of house arrest mm -hmm. and when he comes out he gives these rabble rousing sermons uh, every every Friday uh, in Lahore or many Fridays in Lahore and you know even though they maintain a lot of support from the state. Uh, uh, you know, his, his public message to his followers is this is a corrupt, mm -hmm. infidel government. Um, and he said that repeatedly. So there, you know, this is the, do uh, the tail wagging the dog in, 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 in many ways. It's, it's a very complex relationship. It's, it's quite complicated. Yeah. And there are instances, I've spoken with some of Hafez Said's close advisors and people close with his family, and there are instances also of Said sort of being reined in. He's put on the leash, yes, right? right? And then... 
you know, he'll start to lose people or he'll say, I'm starting to lose people. And he'll go to the state and he'll say, you need to let me go out and, and criticize you <laughs> or criticize America or criticize <laughs> India. And he'll go out and he'll give these rabble-rousing sermons. And it's quite interesting, you know, that on the one hand, while they sort of preach Pakistan is not an apostate government, they also are very critical of it. And a lot of Lashkar members don't know how close the leadership is right. with the army and the ISI. This is not something that they advertise. Right. Um, and when people find out, that's when mm-hmm. you know, it creates problems. So it's a, mm-hmm. it is a very complicated is. relationship. Uh, anybody on the right? Sir, way in the back. Hi. <clears throat> My name is Ahmed Mir, a retired foreign service officer. Uh, it seems to me you've painted a picture which is, uh, shows tremendous chaos and a mess in <laughs> Pakistan. And it's not clear, you know, that uh, they are connected with each other. And one central thing, which I think maybe you had said earlier, uh, is that in addition to not being connected, these organizations, the population of Pakistan is not very connected. I mean, the Punjabis are fighting the Baluchis and the Pathans and so on. Uh, the most important thing is what is our role? What can we do? And what I think would be very good, and maybe you have it in the book, is uh, uh, 10 years ago when we started, where was this? And how much of what we have been doing has been essentially advancing this chaos? Because I think the most important power in the world is us these days. And if we can do something to correct it, then I think it'll happen. But to expect the establishment there to fix anything uh, is going to be impossible. Thank you. Thank you. Um, first, I would, I would say in terms of the connectivity that, that there's an interconnectedness among the various militant organizations, um, but yet there's, there's also competition. You know, the, the sort of the, uh, somebody once described it to me, and it's a, it's a term that I have sort of, you know, made my own, is that there's separateness and, and togetherness, right? Um, these groups cooperate, they compete. Lashkar is sometimes seen as a group apart from the water militant milieu, but that doesn't mean the connections don't exist with other groups. Um, you know, there's separateness and togetherness with the state as well. They have interests that align. Um, there are times when those interests don't align. Um, and so there's, it's, it's, it is quite fluid. Now, in terms of your question about what we can do about it, um, you know, the truth is, vis-a-vis Pakistan right now, given the ground reality, um, there's not much more we can do in, in the short term than we're doing already, you know, pushing for the ISI to, to try to control LET, intelligence sharing in terms of transnational threats. I think we're unlikely to get anywhere in terms of the group being dismantled right now. There's certainly, you know, quite a bit we can do on the international CT front. There's nothing new there. That's good old-fashioned counterterrorism. But to your point about, you know, you know our role in, in, you know, enabling this, you know, I don't think that's entirely wrong. I have said before that while I think an, a military-to-military relationship is important and must be maintained, that ultimately, um, you know, so long as the Pakistani military remains the predominant player on the pitch in terms of Pakistan security policy, you're unlikely to see a Pakistan free of militancy. That's a long-term commitment to building up civilian institutions um, as well as working to encourage you know, an improvement of India-Pakistan you know, relations, although to a large degree the two countries need to do that themselves. The U.S. can be there as a safety net you know, in, in, in the event talks break down on Kashmir or something. 
But, but yeah, I, I think there's a, a fair point to be made that right now our priorities are al-Qaeda and Afghanistan, um, you know, and that to a degree that has contributed um, you know, to, to some of these other issues falling by the wayside um, and to building up an actor that contributes to some of this dysfunction. Sir? My name is V.K. Saswal uh, with Kashmir Forum. I write on Kashmir. Uh, I have a small comment and then a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the comment deals with the uh, Lashkar coming into Kashmir, which was about 2002, 2003, in a big way. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that didn't work according to their plan was that they had actually, uh, they started with a, uh, with a uh, person who blew himself, a young kid, was a high school going kid uh, who was basically made the uh, bomber at the military cantonment, and uh, and uh, his family was taken by surprise when uh, when his identity was established. Uh, people started showing up at the family uh, quarters, mm-hmm. uh, offering congratulations, money, and all that. Same thing that happens in yeah. basically in Palestine, but the family refused. Family was very very critical. They said. I don't want money. I don't. I want my right. boy back. I want my boy. My mother was absolutely. I still remember that very clearly. She was vehement, and that actually led to a, a lot of self introspection by Kashmiris themselves, Kashmiri Muslims, that we are not Middle East. We are not. We don't. We're not. We're not. We're not built in that character, and and uh, quite frankly, they could not get much of a recruitment from yeah. the local population in Kashmir. So there is a small recruitment. It's mostly some of the local faces, but by and large in Kashmir, the movement is still imports from 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 Punjab, mm-hmm. and, and 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 they're pretty much running the show. And, and Pakistan administered Kashmir. Uh, uh, well, I'm talking about the Indian side. I don't know yeah. much about the Pakistan. I'm not Indian side. Uh, most of the most yeah, no, of I'm the, saying it imports from Punjab okay, and from yeah, Pakistan. And, and, and administered Pakistan, Kashmir. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Most yeah, Lashkar fighters are not Kashmiri. No, sure. they're not Kashmiri. Uh, very important. I, I think that was a defining moment. Uh, uh, okay. They never actually ever tried after that. Uh, to set some, you know, some somebody out yeah. there uh, as, a, as, a, as a, to 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 be a human bomb. Uh, the co- the question that I have was that uh, one of the ways that uh, we knew from early '90s that you were promoted in the higher ranks of uh, lieutenant general and above in Pakistani military is you had to be a a, a corporate sponsor of one of these mm-hmm. uh, jihadi groups, and your performance. As, as how your group did was part of the parametrics of performance measurement that basically gave you a promotion down the road. And in that process, uh, 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 Musharraf, was given, General Musharraf, uh, starting from Brigadier Musharraf, was given uh, uh, Jasha Muhammad as the group that he was basically working okay. with. And, 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 and the question was, for a long time, he was pushing for this umbrella organization under Jash to be the lead uh, organization that will be in Kashmir uh, for, 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 for some time. And we did in early, uh, you know, 2000, thereabouts, we did, it was very questionable whether Lashkar will be ahead or Jash will be ahead. So they were kind of at one time being both spoken in the same breath, but then slowly Jash kind of fell behind. So I'm, I'm, my question to you, Stephen, is what led to Jash's demise or Dash's right. uh, versus Lashkar? Got it. Thank you. Um, Thank you for your, your question and, and, and your comment as well. Um, I, I, it's you know it's Lashkar's been in first of all Lashkar's been in Kashmir since in 1990 um, organizationally really since 1993. 
it's arguable that it was a real growing force and presence by 98, 99, when it started launching those Fidian attacks that, that uh, Pamela mentioned earlier. It's important to note these weren't suicide bombings. Uh, the group the technically abjures suicide bombings. Um, these were sort of missions impossible. High risk. Right. You fight to the death, but when you die, you're killed by the enemy rather than blowing yourself up. That doesn't mean that no Lashkar operative has ever blown himself up, but it does mean that the group does not, uh, you know, sort of endorse that tactic or, or train people on it. Uh, and it's certainly the case that, you know, it never had huge support in, in Kashmir either. Um, you know, I, I would argue that one of the things that Lashkar did, perhaps better than the other Pakistani groups in Kashmir, was that it was seen as less abusive of the population. I mean, we're sp- relatively speaking, right? Um, now, my understanding of, of Jaishu Muhammad is that it was a, you know, it was a creation of the ISI. I don't know, you know, Musharraf or anybody else. I mean, this is information that I'm not familiar with. What I, what I am familiar with is that it was, a, it was a creation of the ISI, and to a degree, it was created. I think it's fair to say to check Lashkar's growth. You know, one of the things that if you're controlling a lot of different groups, you don't want any one to grow t- potentially too powerful. So you promote Jaish as a possible, you know, counterweight. Um, you don't have all your eggs in one basket either. Uh, as for why Jaish foundered and uh, Lashkar didn't, you know, a lot of it I think comes down to uh, Jaish's youth and immaturity at the time of 9-11. Uh, this is a group that, you know, had to get into the alphabet soup, had been formed, you know, from a rump of another group, Harakat al-Mujahideen, right? There was competition back and forth between those two. Um, it also drew a lot of members from Sahaba, Pakistan, which is a sectarian group in Pakistan. So from its outset, it was active in Afghanistan alongside the Taliban. It was active. Some of its members were drawn to sectarianism, sectarian attacks in Pakistan, and it was active in Kashmir. And some of its guys were also close to al-Qaeda in large part because it split off from Harakat al-Mujahideen, which was close to AQ. All of which is to say, after 9-11, you have this young group that is not mature and that is ideologically pulled in a lot of different directions, right? So whereas Lashkar is able to stay the course, JEM fissures to, to a much greater extent than a lot of these other groups. Uh, you know, as a, a friend of mine in, in, in Pakistan uh, said, um, you know, they were a bunch of emotional jihadis. Um, you know, so that, that, I think, in large part, contributes to Lashkar's ability to continue to grow, um, and Jaysh is moving in that other direction. How much time do we have left? Uh, sir. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, I'm Bill Weininger from the uh, Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies in Honolulu. Nice to meet uh, you. It's good to meet you. Uh, been a fan of your work. Great presentation today. Looking forward to reading the book. Thank you very much. Feel free to have me out anytime. Uh, we'll talk <laughs> about uh, that. That's one of the rough parts about Honolulu. It's hard to get people to come out. Uh, but uh, my question for you, though, uh, uh, regarding something like a second Mumbai attack. Yeah. Uh, in your uh, professional work with some of the leadership of these groups or, or mm-hmm. your assessment of their attitudes, do they desire such an attack again, uh, given the risk it poses for growing to a much, much larger conflict? Do they want that or do they want to avoid that? And are there elements within the group that are capable or likely to break out of any kind of constraints that may be placed upon right. Thanks. Um, first, I would say to a degree, I mean, you sort of put, put, I think, your finger on it with the, the issue of constraints. Um, it's less necessarily about what the leadership does or doesn't want and more about, to a degree, what uh, the leadership's handlers 
you know, from the security services are prepared to allow. Um, one of the interesting conversations that I've had with uh, folks was that after Mumbai, there was, remember I said that they tried to regain control over the group. Um, this does not necessarily mean ISI handlers trying to regain control over Lashkar leaders. This was, you know, from, from at least from some of my sources, more about switching out some of those ISI handlers for people who were going to be a bit more conservative in terms of what they would allow or wouldn't allow, um, and then helping the Lashkar leadership to get control over some of its factions. So I think that is going to be a large determinant in terms of you know, what they are able to, to move forward with in terms of a large-scale attack. This is something that really came together quite quickly towards the end. Um, you know, and there's, there's real questions about the degree to which um, the ISI handlers who do appear to have knowledge and, and to have embedded this attack were in touch with their higher-ups, right? And so that really matters a lot. Um, as to whether uh, people can break out of those constraints, yes, they absolutely can, and I think that's a continuing concern. Um, can they break out of those constraints to the degree to which to, to launch an attack at the level of Mumbai? That would be more difficult. I mean, Mumbai was in many ways a perfect storm, um, not least because they had David Headley, who made an ideal operative for gathering all of this reconnaissance of Pakistani-American. But certainly, yeah, I think there, there remains real concern about the possibility for another type of Mumbai. Um, my sense is that is something that the security services are trying to keep their finger on. But you know, the longer groups like this are around, the more risk you run. To a degree, I think that helps explain Lashkar's potential growing presence in Afghanistan, quite frankly, is you're looking for a pressure valve. Uh, that, again, would carry you know, significant costs for the group right now. Um, you know, but that does again. That that can change. Calc calculus for handlers, calculus for group, can change. One more question, sir, in the back. Um, I'm Mr. Lloyd from Baltimore. Thank you, sir, for a very scholarly presentation. Thank you. Um, at the height of the power of uh, Prime Minister Binazir Bhutto. Many universities in Southeast Asia awarded her with um, um, special awards. Yeah, and in one of those, I was there, and we asked her about the connections of MILF, the Moral Islamic Liberation Front, operating in Southeast Asia, particularly in the Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia, and the MNLF. We asked her about that, about this many... Muslim groups in the southern Philippines going to Pakistan to do something like uh, research or what, or um, going to madrasa schools or whatever. So we asked her if there is a connection between the Laskar and the MILF and other separatist movements in Southeast Asia. So in, in the entirety of your research with the Laskar and in Pakistan, do you see any connections between the Southeast Asian rebel groups and the Lascar, um, thank you. Definitive evidence, obviously very difficult to come by. Um, statements that, yes, there are connections and circumstantial evidence. Yeah, there's, so, Lashkar has been, as I said, it's been building its transnational networks for quite some time. There were people from Jema Islamiyah um, in Indonesia who were arrested at its 
uh, madrasa in, I think, 2003. Um, there are connections between them. Some of its operatives have been known to travel to uh, Thailand and possibly further east um, to, to create some of those types of connections as well. Um, you know, in addition, uh, Lashkar on its own propaganda has claimed at least to have trained people from the Philippines. And I would point out that in addition to Moral Islamic Liberation Front, there's also Abu Sayyaf, which <laughs> was named for Abu Sayyaf, um, you know, one of the, you know, the, the uh, Mujahideen leaders uh, with whom uh, Lashkar leaders had been close during the 1980s uh, because they both shared a, a Salafist orientation. So there's a lot of different data points where you can connect them. The degree to, you know, is sort of quantifying what that, you know, the level of, of what that relationship is or even qualifying the nature of it is very difficult. As I said, you can connect those data points, but it's hard to say precisely, you know, what was coming out of it. I'm sorry that we're out of time. Um, this has been very, very interesting. Thank you, Stephen Tankle. Thank you very much. I believe the book is outside. Yes. <laughs> uh, might even be for sale outside. Thank so you. Um, stick around if others want to chat. I don't know if there's anything after this, but thank you all for coming.